Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us. I am your host, Gareth Smythe. Today I'm talking with Professor Mark Seip, who teaches the U.S. Allies and Partners course at Georgetown's Security Studies program. Mark is an adjunct professor in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service Center for Security Studies here at Georgetown University and is an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. A retired naval officer and strategist, he previously served as the Navy advisor to the Department of Defense's Office of Net Assessment, responsible for exploring emerging operational and technical trends and their impact on future warfare. He also served on senior joint and service staffs, including a tour as a political military analyst for the Joint Staffs Europe, NATO, and Russia Directorate, and was the Navy's executive fellow to the Atlantic Council. He began his career in the Navy as an aviator, ultimately commanding an airborne command and control squadron, and deploying five times to Europe, the Middle East, and the Western Pacific. He holds a master's degree in public relations and corporate communications from Georgetown University, and is a graduate of MIT's Seminar 21 National Security Program. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are the views of the participants alone and do not represent the views or opinions of Georgetown University, the Precision Guided Podcast, or any other entity. Great. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today on the Georgetown Precision Guided Podcast. It's great to have you live in studio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, we're going to explore U.S. diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific region in this episode. Okay. And I will have already introduced your background prior to this conversation. But can you say a little bit about how you came to working with U.S. allies and partners? Yeah, absolutely. I worked in the Navy for a number of years. And during our time outside the cockpit, we are asked to go to a variety of staff jobs um, that are provided to us. And so as I was negotiating what my orders would be after one of my tours in the squadron, the opportunity to work at the Joint Staff J5, which is Strategy Plans Policy Directorate, came up. And then specific to that, when the orders came, they said, we're going to send you to the Europe, NATO, Russia, and at the time, Africa shop. So ENRI was the name of the shop at the time. So this was in 2008. So that was my first opportunity to work with allies and partners, again, obviously, mostly in the European theater uh, of operations. Right. That's great. And one thing that struck me from your background is your master's degree from Georgetown in communications, right? So we see folks that have security, foreign policy, but yours is communications. Beyond the obvious, what was applicable about your advanced study in communications that you leveraged in the allies and partners work that you've done? Yeah. So again, that came, so that came after that first tour and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I decided that I love my former service and everything else, but um, communications conveying messages and stuff sometimes can be, you know, a mixed bag in the military services. And which is, to be fair to the services, is not, they have other things to worry about, right? Uh, Flying airplanes and driving ships and submarines. I decided that I already knew I was a fairly decent communicator and that by taking a a security studies program like the one here at Georgetown, I was doing that in my day job, Right. right? So to redo that again at night felt a little, you know, duplicative, obviously. Right. So I decided to kind of build out the communication side in a, in the intent and desire to then use those skills in the future. So where did I use those skills to kind of your question? At the time I was taking the master's, I was also the Navy's federal executive fellow to mm-hmm. the Atlantic Council. Okay. Very fortunate to get that position. There's a number of uh, think tanks that they can send you to as a fellowship. All are wonderful in their own way. Uh, but between my time at the Joint Staff, my background and my bachelor's degree in 
international relations at Penn State, or they call it international politics, but basically IR at Penn State. The opportunity to be in a think tank that is explicitly aligned towards engagement with allies and partners right. was fantastic. So, right. um, so it married up really well because at the time I was also starting to publish from there, starting to do you know speaking engagements, things right. of that nature in a more quasi-senior position than previously. And so when you went and did the allies and partners work, having gotten that communications degree, did you find that that's a skill that is kind of lacking in those formal spaces that engage in that work? Like any good politician, I will flip your question and answer it the way I'd like to, which is to Wonderful. tell you that that it's more about, I appreciated, especially being around those at the Atlantic Council. So hmm. I'm going to drop some names just because they're really, really strong personalities if you ever get a chance to see them speak and stuff. So uh, Damon Wilson, who's now the president for, he left the Atlantic Council. He was the executive vice president. And now he's a president in his own right. Barry Pavel was my uh, direct supervisor there at the Brett Scowcroft Center, which is the national security piece of the Atlantic Council. And he's now since moved over to, uh, to RAND. But a, a number of individuals watching them speak, having been in that space for a long time at that strategic level with, uh, whether it's public speaking, of course, but sometimes even like enclosed, you know, small group sessions with fill in the blank head of state or fill in the blank, you know, uh, minister of defense and things right. like that was was awesome. And I wanted to be at that level. And again, nothing pejorative against the Navy. That's not what they train us to do. They train us to go fly airplanes and, you know, fight wars. Right. Maybe related to the communications piece, but you originated the current iteration of the U.S. Allies and Partners course here at the Security Studies Program in Georgetown. What were you hoping that students of national security could gain from a course like that? So I originally started at Georgetown teaching the AI and national security course um, mm-hmm. that Andrew Embry kind of heads up as part of the Gracias chair that he that he sits in right now. And wonderful course, by the way. Really fun course. And for your listeners, if they have an opportunity to take that course, it's a really great primer on, on thinking about how AI will affect national security, how it already does and how it will in the future. Right. But while I was here at Georgetown, I started kind of looking through the catalog. I started thinking about getting back into the allies and partner space after being out of it for a little bit. Right. And I realized that the catalog didn't – it has variations of that, right? Um, they had – so there's a gentleman named Abe Denmark who used to teach here. And he did a, essentially kind of what I'm doing but specific to the Asia-Pacific allies right. and partners. There's, of course, a myriad of courses that cover specific allies and partners. But I wanted to provide an opportunity to kind of do an around-the-world survey of allies and partners in a way that showed and demonstrated thoughtfulness in how you think about it. So as you well know, being in the class – what became obvious while I was in government was that oftentimes the things we would ask our allies and partners in the security realm either were ignorant of or hand-waved away a lot of the challenges that our allies and partners have in their domestic politics and in their economic status. Without going into too many details, it's enough to say that there were times when Germany, for example, was operating in Regional Command North in Afghanistan. There were activities happening in the north. Um, there were multiple policymakers, if you will, asking, like, why aren't the Germans being more assertive and aggressive? R- not recognizing the fact that there was, by domestic politics st- standards at the time, we should just been happy that Germany was there at all. Because mm-hmm. for them, this it was groundbreaking for them to deploy troops abroad in light of, of course, the history of Germany in World War II, of right? Course. And then further to think or expect that they would be offensive in nature right. at a time when they're Constitution expressly prohibits them from being offensive, right. as well as, of course, the history of Germany. There was It was a tone-deaf thing. Mm. And that was just one example among many as I was a younger analyst, if you will. Right. And I started seeing that stack up over time. So all that to say, I want to provide a course to you all that 
not only, of course, talked about the security situation, which we obviously, as you know, spend a lot of time talking about. Of course. But also want to make sure it's informed by the domestic realities and some of the economic considerations of whichever country we're going to talk about. Right. That makes sense. So you're really describing strategic empathy. Exactly. Which is a theme that I think that we've covered in this podcast in the last couple episodes. Okay. One thing that kind of that, that answer brought up for me was what's the balance between meeting allies where they are and pushing each other to be better for the purpose of the alliance? That's a great question. I think it's a yes and. So again, okay. I'm going to kind of split it down the middle. Yeah. It's case by case for each one. Okay. okay. So let's get that out of the way. I think for some allies and partners, again, remembering where they've come from, remembering and being mindful of their domestic pressures that they're on at home as they're coming to a coalition like Afghanistan or if they're a you know, more formal NATO ally. Sure. Understanding that and appreciating that is step one. Mm-hmm. And so for some allies and partners, again, just appreciating what they've got going on there, right. talking through in a sympathetic way, which I know sounds kind of squishy and, and soft powery, but that's the reality of it, um, <laughs> she demonstrates an understanding and an empathy. There are probably some other allies and partners where you can have more frank conversations because the relationship is deeper. And, and again, we're, you, and, you and I are going to talk about this tonight with the United Kingdom, right? right? We've obviously been allies and for an, a many, many years, special relationship. You know, we obviously come from a shared history right. um, and we can afford to have stronger, more pointed conversations with the Brits in this case. Uh, and maybe to a lesser extent, the French, right? Who, again, it's been a more complicated relationship, but Certainly. again, it's been a long one, you know, dating back, of course, to the revolution. Even then, though, as with any relationship, doing it in a tactful manner and in a way that allows a saving of face and a remembering that there are egos involved, no matter who we're talking about, including, of course, ourselves, is paramount. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to call an ally out in public, you had better be well sure that you're doing the right thing or that the cost of doing so is worth whatever reaction you're trying to gain from yeah. that. And yeah. you would probably want to use that sparingly, which is why, you know, you'll see uh, the NATO summit. There's a lot of like lofty language, but hmm. I have faith that when the doors close and the media is not around or anything else, that there are stronger conversations being had. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Thank you. And and it, it I, we forget that these relationships are three dimensional. And so I love the, your language around, you know, we have these relationships that are deep. And because of that, we can have these honest discussions. I think that's a really interesting thing for those of us that are interested in this work, uh, can learn from practitioners like yourself. So turning now uh, to the main subject at hand, uh, it is an understatement to say that despite the acute focus on Russia at the moment, mm-hmm. with its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the U.S.'s major foreign policy focus is in the Indo-Pacific region. And obviously, the administration's foreign policy strategies, like the national security strategy, mm-hmm. are focused primarily on the Indo-Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the president's FY24 budget request for DOD um, orients itself it's, and positions the services around this pacing threat of the People's Republic of China. Right. And so one of, if not the main multilateral organization in the Indo-Pacific for the U.S. is the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, mm-hmm. or the Quad. Uh, made up of Australia, India, Japan, and the U.S. Mm -hmm. that was founded to uphold this free and open Indo-Pacific concept, which we can discuss uh, in detail in in a few minutes. And the Quad serves as that diplomatic, that economic, and that military empower for the nations that are involved in the Quad partnership. And so what I'd love for us to do is kind of use your expertise and your experience to review each country in the Quad and hear from you about what the main strategic challenge and the main strategic opportunity 
that each country faces and what the role of the Quad as an organization is to those ends. And I think we can start appropriately with Japan. Japan is, I mean, it's an understatement to say that it's an incredibly close ally of the United States. Sure. Uh, the two countries have a formal security treaty that includes that mutual defense clause. More U.S. personnel are stationed in Japan than in any other overseas partner country. And Japan has relied on the security umbrella of the U.S. to power itself to become the world's third largest economy. Mm -hmm. Now, Japan has strong diplomatic and economic power in the Indo-Pacific yes. and can be said to be the originator of the Quad through the initial diplomatic work of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, whose vision for the Quad was kind of a mutually reinforcing arc of democracy in Asia. Mm -hmm. right? So he was really instrumental in kind of organizing that, that initial effort in the, in the early 2000s. Yeah. So when it comes to Japan, what do you see as the main strategic challenge that Japan is hoping to use the Quad to leverage? I think the obvious one is geography. Yeah. Um, I think that for all of the focus on um, cyber and mm. space and super long-range fill-in-the-blank weapon systems mm. and all of that, the reality is that geography is still very much in play when you're talking about security dynamics. And so for Japan, they are both the beneficiary and the recipient on, uh, in the negative way about their proximity to China. So when it comes to security challenges, that, that is the most obvious. The second one is something that has been interesting since Prime Minister Abe put out back in 2014 about um, collective self-defense, mm -hmm. trying to figure out a way to look at Article 9 of the Constitution and see where there was room in their legal interpretation of it to allow for Japanese forces to not necessarily be offensive, but to be a little more aggressively defensive mm -hmm. um, in the name of making sure that um, they themselves, as well as the allies, in this case, the United States, uh, can, can be protected if, if attacked. I think the ongoing security challenge going forward is one that I think we've heard f during conversations in the class and other places where how forward both literally forward, like physically forward their right. forces are, as well as how forward they are willing to commit those forces at a time of crisis into conflict, mm. um, I think is, is something that only the Japanese people and the leadership can decide and resolve, right? I suspect that they probably know very well what we would prefer, some of the things we're thinking about in, in this competition with China uh, right. regarding force posture and things like that. But again, at the end of the day, you know, they will have to make decisions that are in their best national interest about how far forward they want to lean um, and whether the domestic politics are going to support that. As far as strategic opportunities, what I will say is I think it's correct that you started with Japan and the Quad because mm -hmm. Abe and others in his camp were very forward-leaning in how the Quad got stood up, the energy behind it. I, from, from kind of the outside looking in, it feels like Japan has been a big, big champion of the Quad. Not that the other three powers are kind of ambivalent. I think Japan has done a great job of really reminding people that the Quad has purpose, um, that it can be used as a solid mechanism for addressing the security challenge that China is presenting. And do you think that that, you know, we spoke earlier about the deeper relationships and alliance that can allow for those hard conversations. Do you think in the context of the Article 9 interpretation or reinterpretation, I mean, do you think that the space is there for the U.S. and Japan to have that dialogue about alliance needs? I... I suspect that 
there are probably conversations happening mm-hmm. regarding that. Um, but at the same time, I tend to fall into the camp of making sure that the United States is mindful of how much it should bring up and how much it should just, to your point earlier about, you know, how much should you meet them halfway or push them hard? Interesting. This is not one, my instincts tell me that this is not one I would push too hard on. That it, it is at the core of many things in their constitution and their political dialogue. And that if asked, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we have brought it up. I, I, I would be surprised if we, we haven't brought it up. But at the same time, I think we would want to be mindful of looking like we're trying to impose our will upon the political realities of Japan. I think you can make your position known, but that's not the same as saying, and therefore you shall dot, dot, dot. Right. Yeah. Well, it's valuable to have your instincts <laughs> recorded on, on the podcast. So I, I appreciate that answer. So we discussed the challenge, right? Geography and also this culture of defense. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the main strategic opportunity for Japan that the Quad can help it achieve? I think that, again, it, it's what has shown pretty impressive energy is Japan's growing relationship with Australia. I think that's been very, very interesting to watch. It's not just a U.S.-Japan show. Not that it was ever necessarily, but it does feel like it's becoming more formalized. It feels like those two are becoming better partners. And I'll readily concede, I don't know for certain if they have mutual defense arrangements. I don't think they do, but I think they've got a lot of other arrangements in place that help with security challenges, if you will. Yeah. And then with India and Japan, um, likewise, uh, theirs is interesting because theirs is um, as much economic um, as any security that, for example, things like um, Japan does a fair number of infrastructure projects for India. Um, Delhi subway was built by a Japanese company. Mm. So there are opportunities there where um, whether that was a direct quad result or whether the quad is just one among many arrangements between those two countries, it kind of helps bring all of that together in a way that, you know, the U.S. is still one of the main security providers, of course, for the Asia-Pacific region. But the fact that these three countries are sharing different aspects, either economically or in the security realm themselves, I think is ultimately a net benefit for all involved, including the United States. What is the biggest thing that Japan brings to the table? What's the biggest capability that they can leverage to support the goals of the Quad? So of the th- of the three Besides the United States, of the three nations, Japan, Australia, and India, Japan's military is, is formidable. Um, Interesting. It's, it's fairly well sourced, got a fair number of high-end pieces of gear. Uh, much of it is compatible with the United States, um, either because they are direct you know, U.S. buys or they create their own indigenous platforms, which are based on U.S. designs. And I have faith that the, the Japanese self-defense force, you know, if pressed, could take the fight pretty hard. So I, I think just from a sheer military power, I think they've got a lot to offer. But again, my instincts also tell me that in a way that perhaps Australia and India to to a lesser extent, I think of the three, if I had to pick one that probably, again, because of proximity, understands just the dynamics of what's going on in the South China Sea, mm-hmm. you know, East China Sea, Sea of Japan, if you will, Korea, understanding the complexity between China, North Korea, South Korea, and obviously, as we all know, South Korea and Japan have their own history too, right. but I don't think anyone understands that area better than Japan. Interesting. You mentioned Australia in the context of Japan, sure. uh, which is a great segue because I think that Australia is a good second country to mention with regard to the Quad. Uh, it's another treaty ally of the United States. Uh, it's the most culturally similar 
-hmm. to the United States. And obviously the shared language helps to ease the diplomacy aspect of the alliance, the bilateral relationship. And obviously Australia has participated in the Australia, United Kingdom, United States Pact or AUKUS, Mm -hmm. which has been in the news recently because of the head of state uh, meeting in San Diego. The original Quad effort ended in, in 2008 when former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, in a move that some saw as trying to align more or or create more favorable relationships with China, Mm -hmm. pulled out of the quad. Um, Although it's been my impression, and I'll be interested in your thoughts, that Australia has made a strong effort in the second iteration Mm -hmm. to kind of make sure that it's playing a role in keeping the quad together. So kind of similar to Japan, what do you see as Australia's main strategic challenge Mm -hmm. that it's hoping to leverage the quad to address? I think that for Australia, they are, like all the countries in the region, not all, but just about every country in the region, they are in a spot where economics matter, right? And to the point um, about hand-waving and stuff, I don't have a lot of patience for analysts that look at it and go, well, yeah, there's some economic things, but and it's like you can't just hand-wave away you know, billions of dollars of trade and personnel, you know, people-to-people transfers and, you know, students and all the other things that go with that. And and Australia has been a, a fairly healthy recipient of China's rise economically. But Australia also, um, unlike many of the nations in the region, Australia is actually a net exporter to China as much as it's an importer. Interesting. Um, so it makes a, a kind of an interesting dynamic economically. And so understanding that while also being mindful of the realities of China's growing coercion in the region mm-hmm. and, and for Australia, specifically some of the the political interference that has been well documented from Beijing into Canberra um, becomes a becomes a challenge. Now, what's really cool to watch is that Australia being a relatively smaller you know nation, twenty five million people um, on that large continent, their ability to pivot, especially pivot politically mm. and address some of the loopholes and some of the challenges they're having with either foreign money or other means of of influence was really kind of cool. I mean, they, effectively solved the problem, if you will, at least at least on paper, they've solved the problem like within, you know, one legislative cycle. Right. Because they can just they can make that action happen and they galvanize. It really it was interesting how it galvanized. But the ongoing economics will continue to be a challenge mm. as Australia looks to decide whether it's gonna do a divestment or at least a diversification of certain portfolios. You know, rare earth elements is kinda of, is kind of the, the big one that often gets quoted in the public mm. conversations. And then one of the other biggest security challenges is just the the reality of the of the size of Australia is that mm. militarily again really impressive military. I was fortunate enough to have Australian LNOs and one of my training squadrons. I got an opportunity to work directly with the Australians during my time at the Pentagon because mm. they had liaisons there, and we were working some arrangements in Regional Command South and Southwest and things you know in that area of Afghanistan. Unbelievable, wonderful people and and probably top of their profession amongst world militaries. But the challenge is like their military is just simply not huge. Mm. So what they can bring to a fight um, becomes, as far as scale goes, becomes a question mark. And for a while too, their military was kind of oriented more towards like territorial defense right. versus power projection. So right. the, as they go, and AUKUS being a key example, as they start pivoting their defense force into something that can go forward a little more mm. should conflict occur, um, it's something that's still in work. So kind of with Japan, or like, or like the Japanese question, what do you see as the main strategic opportunity for Australia that the Quad can help it achieve? Yeah, no, the, the main strategic opportunity is, is really as much about for the United States as it is for Australia, which mm-hmm. is 
you know, as you look at the, again, as you look at the geography of that region and you look at opportunities where the United States might have different um, positions, if you will, to place forces and things like that and and operate from, Australia becomes very attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, distance being a, being a good thing in this case. There's an opportunity there to leverage Australia and for Australia to be leveraged if they decide politically to, to let that happen, um, which in some respects they're kind of already doing with the Marines that are in Darwin and with AUKUS, obviously, itself. Right. The other conversation, too, is can Australia also act as a, like, alternative, you know, regional security provider? Mm. You know, we had an opportunity to work with some of the folks here in town from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute <laughs> um, to explore how might we better leverage our relationships with the Pacific Island nations. Yeah. And Australia was critical to that conversation because of their long-running relationship with those islands in a way that their knowledge base and the things that they think about and the things that they're advising, you know, United States, again, either analysts or whatever to think about, they're doing that at a depth that we don't quite have. Mm. So that is an opportunity is to leverage their relationships to augment the things that we're already doing. Well, much like Japan, they will have the best knowledge and infrastructure in the areas that are around their country, right? I mean, that that's existential to them, right? right? That's really interesting. Yeah. You know, you've spoken a little bit about Australia's geography, its sophistication in kind of some of the Pacific Island regions. What do you think is the main asset or capability that they bring to the to the quad? I think, in, again, I think in some respects, it's almost like, I mean, again, geography, they bring a triangle, if you will, with Japan, Australia, and mm-hmm. India. In a way that, in a way that kind of brings a triangle to things like, you know, uh, Straits of Malacca, mm-hmm. um, the other archipelagic areas that maybe are not in the quad yet, right? right. So they, it forms a nice, mm-hmm. it forms a nice connection there between those three nations, um, and obviously with the U.S. Um, involved in all three. I th- think they have proven since the time of World War One and Gallipoli and everything else, um, it's not trite when you say that the Australians have been there every time we've asked them to be there for any conflict we've ever been involved in. They don't ever say, well, we'll think about it. They always say, cool, where are we going and how much do you need? And we'll do the best we can. Again, that's why they are, they're one of the most, this is nothing derogatory against Japan, um, who are are likewise very, very strong allies. But the Aussies have always been there when we needed them to fight in whatever capacity they could provide at the time. And I mean, in, in my own time in Australia, I heard all about the close mateship mm-hmm. that the people of the country feel to the United States. I mean, they, they really, there is that people-to-people connection that I think is uh, something that is hard to quantify, but is certainly manifest in, in the bilateral. So that's, that's a very interesting answer. So turning now to India, okay. with a, whom the United States has probably the most complex bilateral relationship. Uh, and I know it's also a country with whom you've spent particular amount of time kind of doing some of the work that you described earlier. Yeah. Uh, so tensions with the U.S. during India's Cold War orientation towards the Soviet Union have given way to a warming relationship in the last few years, particularly because of efforts like the Quad and the, like the bilateral security partnership. Yeah. And similar to Australia, this is bolstered by really close people-to-people ties. Uh, obviously, there's a great uh, Indian diaspora in the United States, and so that has kind of cemented the cultural connection between the two countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2016, the U.S. declared India as a major defense partner, which is a unique status in the world uh, meant to highlight the importance of the relationship, yet with an unclear overall meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think the questions about the legacy of non-alignment 
hindering too close of a security working relationship between India and the U.S. Right. kind of persist in the language around the Quad. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you see as India's main strategic challenge that is bringing it to the Quad and that they think the Quad can help them address? I mean, the main strategic challenge, I think, is quite simply China itself. I think that it has been made clear with some of the border dust-ups over the last few years, despite fortunately them escalating to no more than, you know, literally exchanges of, you know, fists and right. all this kind of stuff, no shots fired. But people are still, I mean, people are still dying, right? right? And that's, I mean, that, that is not to be taken lightly no matter how, how those occur. And so the fact that that continues to be a, a growing friction point, hundreds of, you know, miles or kilometers of border, 5,000 years of shared cultural history between those two can be fraught, you know, at times. But at the same time, after the Doklam dust up in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, it was within like four months, Prime Minister Modi and President Xi met mm-hmm. and tried to smooth over relations, right? So India is not, they are by no means naive about like the realities of how to work in that, in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And if you give the Indians credit for anything, it's their ability to see and to court all sides of almost any situation, kind of like a friends of all kind of approach to yeah. some extent. I'm sure that if you press them, they will, you know, they'll they'll go and fight hard like any other nation yeah. in defense of their national priorities. But short of that, they spend a lot of time working relationships, right? And the most obvious one being the continuing on with Russia, despite right. everything that's going on right now. And so on the flip side, what do you see as the main strategic opportunity for India that it believes the Quad can help it achieve? India has been struggling to modernize its military hmm. and think that they look at the Quad as one opportunity, if not to modernize the gear, then to at least find mechanisms to to set the stage for modernization. So for, as one example, they run the Malabar exercise, pre-high-end um, naval exercise that India sponsors and supports. And, you know, over the past few years with the evolution of the quad, so too has it gone from India-US to India-US-Australia, now to India-US-Australia-Japan. It's effectively become kind of a quad-like exercise. Interesting. Even though it's not, to be clear, it's not under, you know, a formal quad stamp, if right, you will. right. Um, so I think that's like one tangible example of that. I think that I, I assume that politically knowing that there's a better appreciation for India's unique position because they are very quick to point out that of the four quad, they're the only ones that have, quote unquote, two borders with China, both a maritime border yeah. and a land border. And so I think they are appreciative of the fact that the quad provides a reminder to the other three, like, hey, there's a whole other thing going on over here on the other side of Strait Malacca that you need to be aware of in some of the challenges we face. So it's, it becomes an opportunity of itself. And then as a final comment, I think that in, a, in the ongoing relationship with India and Pakistan, hmm. I think that the Quad offers an opportunity for them to voice or re- remind, again, these key partners in the area that, again, there's this whole other security dilemma that they're also facing that right. if, if, if able you know, understanding how to possibly mitigate that would be be helpful. What do you think is the biggest capability that the Indians bring, you know, besides their sophistication around some of the land challenges, the border challenges with China? I mean, what other things do they bring to the alliance that uh, is a benefit to to the other countries? When it comes to military services interaction between the United States and India, Mm -hmm. the Navy is one of the key pieces of that. Mm. And as you look to kind of the Indian Ocean maritime situation, the idea that the Indian Navy can help in some ways you know, with domain awareness and some other opportunities that is, is hugely helpful. And again, just by virtue of being in a place where 
they are remaining open to conversations with China. I think diplomatically, if played right, they can maybe help in ways that the other three might feel um, a little more constrained. Hmm. You know, if you're Australia and you've had recent political interference, overt political interference, but from China, right? Unfortunately, as a politician, then if you wanted to somehow bridge that, it's going to become a little more difficult. Interesting. In a way that maybe India might not have that same challenge. So I'd, I'd be remiss without kind of mining some of your own experience in working with India as a security partner of the U.S. What was the thing that most surprised you, either about the bilateral relationship or about kind of the, the, the Indian partners that you worked with directly? So I'll talk more about the relationship out of, out of preference, frankly, for the sure. partners directly. I think that it was, as someone who's relatively new to, to the, um, the relationship between India and the United States, um, the number of times I heard that this is going at a rate much faster than anybody anticipated was pretty cool. I think that there was a lot of conversations and, and good, frank conversations being had between the two sides in a way that for those who had been practicing for a long time, it was it was refreshing hmm. uh, to that. So in that regard, and it was, it was, it was pretty cool. I think there is a lot of shared concern about regional dynamics. While everyone, of course, is hoping for a diffusion of some of the current tensions and stuff like that, the reality is, you know, we're we're kind of all starting to see some of the similar pictures relative to China's rise and, and growing um, assertion in the region. Mm-hmm. And so having the opportunity to have those frank conversations again, as I keep saying, um, <laughs> by having frank conversations with a partner of any kind, it helps start understanding that we're seeing things through similar lenses. Right. Whereas if you keep a more standoffish approach, it becomes more challenging to say, well, what I see is this. No, what I see is this. Like, if you can't get to that spot with an ally or partner, you're already at a disadvantage because then you're not revealing your own perception of the situation. You're assuming that they see it the way you do. And that's, I mean, that's the importance of the strategic empathy that we spoke to earlier. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that feels baseline, but it sounds like maybe often is not. So that's very interesting. So lastly, maybe the hardest question that I have for you is the U.S. Okay. So instead of kind of asking you the, that same question about opportunity and challenge, mm-hmm. I'll just ask you, what does the U.S. get out of the quad okay. in the Indo-Pacific? The idea that all four of these very powerful yet very diverse nations mm-hmm. can come together and, again, start sharing their perception of the situation, whatever that situation might be, either the meta situation or maybe specific instances or specific aspects like economics or diplomacy or security. The fact that there is a forum now where these four very different but very powerful nations can come together and have that conversation, that alone takes care of like 50% of the challenge of putting together a coalition, if you will, or an alignment of like-minded nations. So that's that's step one. I think it has been offset to almost the point where it's cliche, but I think it still holds true and obviously is the genesis for this entire course, which is, yes, allies and partners can can be challenging at times, and we are no exception. Um, <laughs> as, as we saw in the very first slide in the very first week, yeah. Winston Churchill made it abundantly clear that he was talking about the United States. Totally cool. Right. Um, and at the same time, like, I do hold fast to myself and others in the community who are like, Allies and partners are absolutely the way that you're going to move your objectives forward in a way that other nations who have chosen to either not have allies and partners because that's not a part of their worldview or are otherwise being a, a bit more aggressive regionally than they should be. And of course, in the case of Russia, being far too aggressive, right? Um, it, which is the kindest way of saying it, that you, you can't do what you do as the United States 
as India, Japan, or Australia. You're not going to be able to do that alone. And even the United States, I think what we're coming to realize quickly and rightfully so is that, yes, we're still the strongest power by many metrics, but that doesn't mean that we can just exert our will upon others for an infinite amount of time and just keep going forth like we did after the end of the Cold War. We have to have other nations together. So from the United States standpoint, I believe that the Quad is a key example of how you can bring otherwise very disparate powers together to move forward in a coherent manner. In your analysis of the Quad and the work that you do, which nation is the indispensable nation when it comes to the Quad? Uh, you're not allowed to ask that. They're all indispensable. Is that Come right? on, Gareth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because as soon as somebody hears this, they're going to be like, oh, see, that guy from so-and-so freaking said right. that, you know, if someone's indispensable, right. then that means I am dispensable. And in all seriousness, I think, again, I, mean, I am going to punt in the sense that, it, so say hypothetically one of them were to drop out of their own volition. Mm-hmm. Right. In a, in a replay of, you know, the 2007, 2008 mm-hmm. Australia withdrawal from Quad. Right. At this moment, and especially with the way things are going in this current political environment and geostrategic environment in 2023, if any one of them drops out, I think it creates massive disruption to what we, the United States, and what we as these four nations are trying to accomplish in the region. So I would say that we are all indispensable because if anyone decides that it's just not worth it and they drop out, it makes everything else so much more complicated. The one thing that I think, one among many, hopefully, that are giving Beijing leaders pause for any kind of like overt aggressive action against fill-in-the-blank territory is the idea that you've got at least four nations plus you know maybe some other powers through bilateral arrangements and stuff like that that are just not going to tolerate that. Um, And if you don't have this mechanism, as imperfect as sometimes the quad can be, it's hugely helpful to move that message forward, if that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for allowing me to try. Uh, So I appreciate it. What does free and open mean? Free and open... Uh, so I'm sure there's a textbook definition. Sure. There's many, as I say, there's many, there's many documents that call for the free and open Indo-Pacific. In my estimation, free and open is everything from nations can make their own decisions about um, their political paths, can make decisions about economic arrangements. It also means that countries can resolve disputes peacefully because let's be honest, I mean, nations are going to have disputes. I mean, even we have allies around the world that have disputes with other allies, right? So it's naive to think like we should all just be free and open and like, no, there's no friction. There's going to be friction, but how you handle that friction is key, right? So when you get arbitration for Scarborough Shoal in the Philippines and China chooses to ignore the international ruling, right? That's not free and open. If they're building artificial landforms, saying that they're not going to militarize them and then they militarize them, that's not free and open. That's very clearly coercion or, you know, the the latent perception of coercion by creating bases that can house some pretty impressive weapon systems, yeah. right? Illegal fishing, right? Which I know sounds mundane in the larger scale of geopolitical and, you know, militaries and all this kind of stuff, but that's those are people's livelihoods. Mm-hmm. And there are countries messing with other people's livelihoods mm-hmm. by illegal fishing, mm-hmm or by excessive um, economic claims, right? Like the nine dash line. Right. So free and open is a is an understanding amongst the nations in a given area, in this case, you know, the Asia Pacific and broader Indo-Pacific, that there are rules of the road. And if you're choosing not to use those rules, then you're impeding the freedom and openness of all involved yeah. in the name of whatever, you know, selfish claims you've got going on in the name of whatever you're trying to do. So you spoke earlier about the need to get on the same page with the same strategic vision between the you know partners. Mm-hmm. 
What's the role of, of the democracy orientation of the Quad mm-hmm. to having that shared vision? Yeah, no, it's a great question because I think if you look back to history and you look at the Cold War, right, the rhetoric was democracy versus communism. Right. And frankly, it made it kind of easy because both sides kind of played into that rhetoric pretty heavily, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the Soviet Union played just as heavily into that rhetoric as the United States in the aims of fill in the blank, whatever they were trying to accomplish with that rhetoric. You move now forward and, and certainly... There is is an element, I would argue, about democracies versus, you know, more authoritarian regime like like Xi. But the rhetoric is a little bit more muted this time. And I think, you know, it's it's not a, you know, communism, socialism versus a democracies. And so I'm not saying that it's a false label. At the same time, if one of these other three nations outside the United States were more authoritarian or illiberal, but were otherwise aligned to our security challenges, and we could work with that. Mm-hmm. I'm, would that change anything? I'm not. I'm not necessarily convinced it would. Interesting. It, it's certainly helpful. Yeah. But I think I, I, I'm hesitating and I'm, I'm hemming a little bit only because I think that for those rhetorically who are like, well, democracy equals align with the United States. I don't. Th- there's plenty of cases historically that show that that is absolutely not true, right? And that democracies by virtue of being democracies, can choose their own path. So it's good, and and it, again, helps with some shared understanding about some of the political realities inside each of the capitals. We understand that by all being democracies, we're all beholden to our citizenry. Totally awesome. That's great, which also makes decision-making a little bit harder. But generally, democracies also admittedly do tend to, you know, the, the right answer does tend to come to fruition after all wrong answers are tried or whatever the, <laughs> the, whatever the cliche is. Another Churchill quote. Yeah, another Churchill quote, right. Um but, uh, you know, the, the reality is that I, I don't give a lot of credence to the label of democracies, you know, in the sense that a democracy in any one of these other three capitals or in our own, to be to be completely fair to ourselves and right. honest with ourselves, right. could change the entire trajectory of this whole thing yeah. if the populace decides they want to take it in a different direction. Right. I just have two more questions that I want to, I want to hit with you. Yeah. And the first is that, as you know, the Quad has a group of three Quad Plus members, New Zealand, South Korea which are both treaty allies of the United States, yep. and Vietnam. We see other treaty allies of the U.S. or close partner nations of the U.S. shifting their focuses to the Indo-Pacific as well. Mm-hmm. Canada just released a really fascinating Indo-Pacific strategy, mm-hmm. kind of talking about how you know they need to orient themselves to the Indo-Pacific, recognizing the economic and the security challenges and opportunities. Which nation, either in the Pacific or out, yeah. do you think we should be bringing into the Quad to have them provide their perspective, if you could choose one? I think I would probably choose Indonesia. Again, I, as you're picking up, up throughout this conversation, I'm a big fan of geography. And if you look at where Indonesia and, of course, Malaysia sit, and if you're looking at things that could hold a China at risk if we need to get to that place, then Indonesia certainly helps. And And I think that Indonesia has some complex relationships with some of the other quad partners, um, Australia being a key example of that one. I think they've had a, a pretty up and down relationship over the years, but they have a relationship, right? And so it would be interesting because when the tsunami happened in 2004, which I was I was on Abraham Lincoln when we went over to help with the recovery efforts and, uh, and the humanitarian assistance. Wow. During that, prior to that time, the U.S.-Indonesia relationship was not good for reasons that admittedly I'm not 100% sure on. Um, I don't know my history of that relationship too, too well. But it was, it was known that this was a new thing for us to go mm. hang out with Indonesia in, in the name of helping them mm. at a truly devastating time. Yeah. And that since then, because we offered that help, 
the relationship has gotten better, but, you know, it's still got a ways to go and, and for many reasons, I'm sure. So if, if there's an opportunity for other partners inside the quad to help build that relationship with someone like an Indonesia, that would be fantastic. And again, from a geo positioning standpoint, Indonesia is, is at just at the right spot, perhaps at the right time. At the same time, as we've already talked about in the class, you know, for many reasons, Indonesia itself is also wary of being caught in the middle. Like many powers in the, in the Asia Pacific who have chosen to stay a little more neutral for many very valid reasons, it would be interesting to see really how far that could go, knowing that Indonesia is very much a, like, we're not interested in being the piece in the middle between these two countries, um, the United States and China, in a great power competition. Um, so how that, not knowing Indonesia better, I'm, I couldn't speculate on, like, what would tip the balance right. such that they would join a quint, I guess, in that case. That's, it doesn't roll off the tongue as much as no, quad, no, the no, quint. Quad, quad quad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you to be kind of your most hand-wavy, your most crystal ball-y. Sure. What do you think is going to be the legacy of the quad yeah. over the next, you know, let's say we do 50 years from now, right? Yeah. Historians are studying this orientation, okay. this security challenge. Yeah. What is the legacy? Hopefully the number one legacy is that, like, we have not gone to war with China, right? The number one legacy is that for whatever the Quad's ultimate aims are, whether it's a you know diplomatic mechanism, uh, economic security, all the yes to all the above, that through the Quad plus whatever other actions need to be taken, either you know against China or to be quite honest, even with China, right? Because there's a whole, that's a whole other podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> right, um, right. Is is that the Quad is just one small piece among many that has prevented major combat operations between the United States and China because that is not going to go well for anybody, right? And if the decision's made, then the decision's made. And that's not for me to judge on this podcast or any other time. That's for political leaders to decide if if it must happen. But it's enough to say that it's going to be immensely disruptive. So that is the key piece of legacy, part one. Part two would be, again, these relationships, I think, are, are deepening. And eventually, there will be other things beyond the immediate focus of China and and to be fair to the Quad even today, I, I know their agenda includes more than just China, right? There's there's climate change, right. which is going to affect all of our allies in that region and us, of course. Really, is going to affect Pacific Island nations. It's definitely going to affect India. Climate change is going to only become more important. So if a Quad has an ability to address that in a way that helps all four of them and their neighbors, fantastic. And other, you know, in 50 years, I mean, God forbid, but hopefully there will not be another pandemic, but something of kind of that more global scale. If you have these four very powerful nations in the Asia Pacific that have a mechanism to meet quickly, have conversations about X, Y, and Z, and then move out, fantastic. Yeah. Are you, are you asking me if they'll be in alliance? No, I don't, I don't think that's realistic for many reasons in the Asia Pacific, and nor do I think these nations necessarily want some kind of, you know, NATO Asia, if you will. But I do think that it creates, the, the longer they keep this mechanism going and the more, not just keep it going, of course, but like keep the energy in that mechanism, the, I think the better it'll be when something requiring an active and aggressive response is needed. Well, thank you for that. And I'll track you down in 50 years and we can, we can do a, we can <laughs> you track me down in 50 years. You're going to have to find me at a senior home or something. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for your time and expertise. Yeah. I have learned a great deal and I've been with you studying this for the last 10 weeks. Yeah. Uh, so, but you always have a lot to bring to bear. And I also want to thank you for your work in strengthening these alliances and these partnerships. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, it's a noble profession and we're lucky that you um, were committed to doing that. So, so thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for listening to the Precision Guided Podcast. 
Follow the Georgetown Security Studies Review on social media to stay up to date on the latest podcast episodes and GSSR content. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at georgetownsecuritystudiesreview.org.